welcome back to another episode of Confessions of a Krabby Christian, a Misfit Media Network production. I am your host and resident Krabby Christian, Blake, and every week I get to have the coolest conversations with incredible people about all the things most Christians are still not sure we're allowed to talk about. So if you've been looking for a place to land with all your crap and for someone to just be honest about what it looks like to walk through this Christian life, well, you've come to the right place. Pull up a seat, pop in your headphones and tune out your kids and come hang out with me and a guest for the authentic conversations that you have been looking for. Jason, welcome to Confessions of a Crappy Christian. Thanks, Blake. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) Welcome to the Crappy Christian crew. (laughs) Your book, Fight Like Jesus, came out last year, but we're airing this episode right around Holy Week and going into Easter, which is pretty much what your book is about. I love the subtitle. The subtitle threw me off, I'm not going to lie, at first, (laughs) how Jesus waged peace throughout Holy Week. Tell us about your book and about yourself. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Pennsylvania and attended a Christian college called Messiah College, now Messiah University. And and it was there that I met some Anabaptist students who really got me thinking about issues of what does it mean to love your enemies and, and issues of justice. And, and so a couple of years after college, I joined a group called Servants that was started out of New Zealand back in the 80s. And it's an international network of of Christian communities that all feel called to live and minister among the urban poor. And historically, Mm -hmm. that was in the slums of some of the bigger cities in Southeast Asia. But they were starting a new community in Canada's poorest urban neighborhood. It's a a section of Vancouver called the Downtown East Side. And and so I joined that community to help start it. And and that neighborhood, it's you know, it's got on any given night about five thousand people struggling with homelessness. Yeah. There's a lot of drug addiction issues, uh, about 900 women, it's estimated, uh, trapped in prostitution. And so I knew all about all that. And I went there thinking of myself as a peacemaker, as, as someone who was called to contend for the flourishing of this beautiful yet, yet broken neighborhood, right? Man, just a couple of weeks after I arrived, I was blindsided to learn that uh, the trial began for the man who we all would learn was Canada's deadliest serial killer, Robert Pickton. Oh. Over a decade, he would drive into the downtown east side, my neighborhood, pick up a woman engaged in sex work, take her back to his farm, and kill her. Mm-hmm. And my neighbors have been telling the police for years, our friends are disappearing, do something about it. And they didn't. These weren't prominent women from the center of society, you know? Right. So by the time of his arrest, he had butchered and fed to his pigs the bodies of 49 women. So, I mean, my neighbors were just devastated. They were scared. They were angry. And the combination of just, you know, so much poverty and and the powerfulness of the drugs, just how potent they were, and now this grieving over so many lost lives, um, it just proved too much for me. So after a couple of years, I, I just was broken. I mean, now I know I was burnt out, you know? Yeah. And, and so one day I, I went to church and it turned out to be Palm Sunday. And uh, like at most churches, it was a joyous occasion, right? You know, the, the classic scenes of the kids parading through the sanctuary and uh, chanting Hosanna and all the hymns are suddenly in a major key, no minor chord. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't in any mood to participate. So I remember just crying out in, in the pew to God in prayer and just saying, God, I'm a failure of a peacemaker. I have no idea how to cultivate shalom in this neighborhood. Would you teach me how to make peace? 
And so when the when the sermon began, I just decided to read the Gospels rather than listen to the feel-good message. And so I, I randomly chose the Gospel of Luke, and that's when I noticed something that I had never noticed before and where the book ultimately comes out of. And that's that it says, while the crowds were shouting cheers, Jesus was shedding tears. Mm. Notice that. Maybe it's because my emotions finally matched you know, our right. state grief instead of the crowd's glee. And it actually tells us why he was so sad. It says when he could hold back his grief no more, he cried out for everyone to hear, if only you knew the things that make for peace. Mm. Yes, that's what I want to learn. That's what I want to know. And then a thought entered my mind that I believe was from God. Or, and it was just, perhaps if you want to be effective as a practitioner in Jesus's approach to peacemaking, perhaps there's no better place to look than Holy Week. Mm. It's the main stage on which we get to see Jesus put all of his previous peace teaching into action. You know, I had Jesus's peace teaching memorized, like from the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I could quote it verbatim, love your enemies, turn the other cheek, do not violently resist an evildoer. I just didn't know how to apply it in the messiness of the downtown east side. And that's the beauty of Holy Week. We get to see Jesus actually apply all right. of his peace teaching. That's an incredible story. I mean, I remember, I don't remember Robert Pickton, but I majored in criminal law in mm. college. And yeah. so since then, I've kind of kept up with all of those stories. And I, I do think it can be lost on people the impact something like that has on a community. Yes. we. I'm from the Baton Rouge area. And so we had Derek Todd Lee, who was mm. far before I even moved here. But still, people who have lived here their whole lives are still impacted by like that level of evil and that level of crime. And then you add on top of it what you're saying, kind of that the poverty and the the struggle already, you were stepping into like a mess, kind of. Yes, <laughs> that's the word to use. And so when you showed up with your servants team, what were y'all like boots on the ground? What were y'all actually doing? Yeah, great question. For the first year, we were doing nothing other than getting to know our neighbors Love and that. getting to learn the history of our community. Otherwise, you might cause more harm than good. Yeah. And so every servants team, whether that's in Indonesia or Canada, you're spending that first year, we call it a formation year. And so, for example, you know, at one point during that year, my friend Craig and I, we spent a week voluntarily homeless on the streets of the downtown east side because we wanted to know what it was like for our neighbors on the streets. And before that week, we had thought, you know, maybe after this first year, we'll start some sort of feeding program, you know. But during that week, we discovered you can get free food in the downtown east side 23 times a day. Wow. <laughs> no one was starving for food, but they were starving for friendship, mm. pervasive in that community. And so hospitality really became our main form of ministry. Not not what Martha Stewart means by hospitality. Right. You know, we mean like like welcoming in those who are not normally the recipients of welcome. So we just opened up our home as a community. And, you know, we would tell uh, neighbors, you know, their first time they'd come, you're our guest. But the second mm -hmm. time you come, you're family. So mm -hmm. you can help cook with us. We'll eat together. You'll, we'll clean the dishes together afterwards. We'd often have impromptu times of, of worship afterwards, you know, an eclectic mix of like Amazing Grace and ACDC. Yes. We, just a lot of stories. Like we start something called prehab because we noticed a number of our neighbors would hit rock bottom. They'd want to go into rehab, into a rehab program, but all of the programs were full. So you either had to wait for someone to drop out or for someone to graduate. But every day you had to go back down and say, I still want in the program. And you had to take a test to show you hadn't been using drugs. Otherwise, your name's off the waiting list. And so we saw so many friends just 
fall back into their addictions. I mean, the dealers are still offering them drugs as they walk the streets, right? Right. So we said, well, why don't you just come live with us? Leave mm-hmm. your drug paraphernalia, you know, bring, don't bring that in. We've got kids in the community. But um, we promise one of us will walk down with you every day to the rehab place. We know we're all tempted the most when we're alone. And uh, we just share life together. And we saw some beautiful transformation. A number of people who did prehab ended up joining our community. One gentleman named Kevin, he uh, he was halfway through rehab, and it was the first Sunday he was allowed to go with the group to church and actually leave the facilities. And and uh, Craig, who I mentioned earlier, he was speaking about his time living in the slums of Cambodia. And Kevin came up to him afterwards and said, God's calling me to be a missionary in Cambodia. <laughs> Blake, if it was me, I, you know, I would have been like, well, why don't you graduate from rehab first and then come <laughs> out, you know? And Craig was like, okay, I'll start coming down and teaching you the language. Yeah. After he graduated, Kevin joined our community. He was known as the weeping preacher because he would always tear up when he talked about what God had done in his life, the transforming work. And, and for the last 12 years, he's been in Cambodia. Stop. Yeah. That's incredible. But that is fighting like Jesus, right? And, right. and we're going to, I want to get to the, the heart of the book. But when I, when I asked what y'all were doing, fully was expecting, like we came in, we started a nonprofit, we started feeding people, mm-hmm. we started, cl- and those are good things. Like those are good and necessary things. And I love getting to watch people do that. But the fact that y'all took the time to just get to know people, when you read the gospels, like that's what you see. Jesus rarely from my reading of scripture busted into situations and was like, here's how I can fix everything. Yep. Right. He came in and like got to know people. And he, one thing that's been kind of blowing my mind lately, and this may be short-sighted of me that I'm as old as I am and I'm just now getting to this, but the parables were completely culturally relevant Mm. for the people that were hearing them, right? Yeah. We read stuff about farmers and toiling and all that. And I'm like, I mean, not the most relatable story I've ever heard, but for them it was because Jesus understood them. And so by like immersing yourself in their community, not that it was easy, but that paves the road for people to feel welcome when they normally feel unwelcome. Yeah. Yeah. It's telling, you know, I mean, this isn't in the book or anything, but that John 1, the word became flesh and dwelled among us, or I think as the message says, it moved into the neighborhood, right? And that's why right. like in servants, everyone feels called to not just minister to the poor, but to live among them. Amen. Amen. So let's talk about peacemaking, fighting like Jesus and Holy Week, because I know that's sure. really where it all comes together for you. What is your main focus for Holy Week for people in terms of peacemaking? Yeah, so the book takes that lament that Jesus spoke. It's his first publicly spoken words of of Holy Week, you know, as he's doing his triumphal entry, and says, what if that's the key to understanding everything Jesus does throughout his final days? I mean, clearly it's what was on the forefront of his mind as he entered into his last week, you know, it's only two times we see him crying in the Gospels. Once when La- before raising Lazarus from the dead, he's crying with everyone else, and this time where everyone's shouting cheers, right? So the passion and the content reveals that making peace was of the utmost importance for him. So the book goes day by day through Holy Week, looking at how Jesus did just that with the aim of equipping us to do the same mm. in our locations. And so even, you know, Palm Sunday, the very start, we call it Holy Week, right? But right. but for Jesus and his contemporaries, it was, they were going to Jerusalem for Passover, the week-long Passover festivities. And and Passover was was a time to remember when God liberated the Israelites from 
a foreign superpower, Egypt, right? Well, for people struggling under the yoke of yet another oppressive superpower, this time Rome, Passover reminded them of their longing to be liberated. And so the week actually had a track record of inciting all-out insurrection, you know? So like in 4 BC, some disgruntled Jews stoned a group of Roman soldiers to death, and Herod Archelaus came in and uh, crushed the uprising, canceled Passover, and afterwards Rome said, okay, from now on, the provincial ruler in the area has to bring reinforcements because there can never be another uprising during Passover. And so on this particular Passover, you know, when Jesus comes, Pontius Pilate leaves his town on the coast of the Mediterranean and bring what historians think were, were he, he tripled the number of troops in Jerusalem. And they would have made a triumphal entry coming in on the, let me get my direction straight, on the western side of Jerusalem. Well, we read that Jesus and his motley crew enter from the other side, right? Right. It sa- says that the crowds went out to meet him because they heard he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So here's a man who can control death itself. You know, what does Pontius Pilate have over that? And so, you know, when you think about like the crowd's actions, they they shout Hosanna, which I thought was a praise word like hallelujah, but it actually means liberate us now, like mm. deliver us, we plead. It says they quote a Psalm 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add some words not found in the Psalm, the King of Israel. It says they laid their coats on the ground, which seems strange to you and I, kind of like the parables that we don't always get the context right. of, right? Well, they knew what that meant. That's how you coronate a new king. It's what they did for Jehu, for example, in Second Kings chapter 9. And then the most telling thing they did, they waved palm branches, which Blake, I always thought they were like the, the giant foam hands you see at sporting events. You know, <laughs> like I thought they meant like, you're awesome, Jesus. Yeah. I'm your number one fan. But they were actually a politically loaded symbol. It goes back about 200 years before when another empire, the Seleucid Empire, ruled over the area and their king desecrated the temple, sprinkling, sprinkling uh, pig's blood throughout it. And then he demanded that all the towns in the area offer sacrifices to his gods. Well, there was an old Jewish priest named Mattathias who refused. He actually killed the king's inspector, tore down the altar, and fled to the hills. And soon after his health deteriorated, he's on his deathbed. He calls his five sons around him, and his dying words are this, avenge the wrong done to your people, pay back the Gentiles in full. Mm. And so middle son Judas takes up that mission, and he leads this pretty successful uh, revolt and gains back parts of Jerusalem. He's so fierce in battle, they gave him the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. Wow. And so he gets part of Jerusalem back, regains the temple, and it says he made a triumphal entry, cleansed the temple, and the crowds waved palm branches. And they thought they were going to get their liberation, their freedom back, so they started minting their own coins, and the symbol they put on it was a palm branch. Wow. Encircled with the battle cry for the redemption of Zion. So, in other words, when the crowds are waving palm branches as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, it's a symbol saying, We want to be liberated from Rome, and waving them at Jesus meant, We think you're our liberator. Yeah. Wanted to take a second and make sure you knew that my flagship course for content creation and social media growth and management is going to open for registration on March 28th. This is a six-part course that is not just for content creators. It is for anyone who wants to leverage the power of social media and free marketing for their business, their ministry, their personal voice, 
and it goes through everything you could possibly need to know about showing up well on social media, being true to yourself, keeping God as the focal point, and being successful, monetizing, and growing. You can find out more about Run Your Race by going to thegirlnamedblake.com slash course. Join the waitlist. Don't miss it. It's going to be awesome. And so you got to think what Jesus did in response. He rides a donkey, not a war horse like Pontius right. Pilate. And John tells us why he did it. It was to fulfill Zechariah's vision from uh, Zechariah chapter 9, this vision of a peaceful king who would bring peace to all nations, it says, and remove the weapons of war from his own people. Yeah. And then the timing and the location are significant too. We, we usually overlook this part, but it was lamb selection day. It was the 10th of the Jewish month of Nisan, the day when, according to Mosaic law, everyone chose their Passover lamb and then held on to it for four days. So Jesus, this the lamb of God, not the hammer of God, like Judas right. Maccabeus, right? And his route actually lines up with the route that the sheep would have come from because um, they were supplied from Bethlehem. And they both would have entered through the sheep gate, it was called. Yeah. You know, So here we have Jesus subtly yet unambiguously saying, I'm not coming like the hammer of God to bring a hammer down on your enemies. I'm coming as the lamb of God. And I think we, the word peace often has a passive mm -hmm. or weak connotation. When in reality, if we're basing our definitions off of scripture, peace is extremely strong. It's almost always victorious. Like it is a strong word. Jesus didn't come in and, oh no, like, no, not me. He was like, mm -hmm. yeah, it's me, but I'm not going to do it the way you want me to, or you think that I should, I'm going to end up dying. Like I see that as so much stronger than mm. needing to come in guns blazing, right? Yeah. Well, it's just so well said, you know, peace, it can be such an ambiguous concept for us today. I remember my original working title for the book was Resurrecting Peace. I thought it was a clever title until a publisher said to me, no one's going to know what the book's about. Mm. You know, is this an inner peace? Is this, you know, a reconciliation between the within families or congregations, is right. this like global peace? You know, what are you talking about? Peace means a hundred different things. And and so, like you said, peace was such a strong idea for Jesus. It, it comes from the, the Hebrew word shalom. And that, you know, it, it denotes healing, health, and wholeness in all aspects of life. You know, it can right. never coexist with injustice. It's when everything is as it ought to be, as God intends for it to be, when our relationship with God, with each other, with creation, with ourselves, when, when all those relationships are flourishing. Yeah, absolutely. So the interesting thing about Holy Week, though, and I'm sure you get this question a lot, is there's an event that happens on that Monday Yes, that doesn't, through the human's eye, read as peace. This is Jesus in the temple. This is like the whip and the table flipping. Yes. So I know in your book, your argument is that this is actually, this is Jesus making peace. I agree. That's, I think that we... Some Christians leverage that isolated event to be like, you should flip tables whenever you want. <laughs> I don't think that that's the takeaway. I think it kind of goes back to what I was just saying. That like Sometimes peace is strong and holding your boundaries. And sometimes you have to be willing to do difficult things in order to achieve peace. Mm -hmm. Tell me about how you cover that in your book. Yeah. Well, maybe the first thing to say is, you know, the gospel writers, they divide 
that event, the temple cleansing, into three phases, three stages. And the first actually occurs the night before, Sunday evening. So you'd think Palm Sunday would end in some climactic, glorious fashion, you know, after that, that entry and the crowd's actions. But it just says that Jesus went into the temple, he looked around, like we were talking about a little earlier, before doing something, he first assessed the situation, kind of a reconnaissance mission. And then it says he goes back to Bethany for the night, which is about two miles outside Jerusalem. So he had all night to think about what he saw, and something clearly bothered him that he saw there. So when he comes back the next day, you know, it's usually depicted as something caused Jesus to just snap, you know, on right. Monday. You know, dad joke I make in the book, it's like he had a massive temple tantrum, right? He, <laughs> he just loses it. But I would say, I think his actions were just as calculated and planned as the, the previous day's actions. And so first he assesses the situation, right, the night before. And then the action itself, only one gospel mentions the whip. And I, I go and I kind of slow down in the book there and take my time looking, yeah. asking the question, did Jesus whip people or animals? Can we even know, right? Right. And there's a lot of factors. I'll, I'll just very briefly mention a few. Like it says, for example, that Jesus constructed the whip once he was already in the temple. And it tells us the material he used. It was made from scornion, which is like wicker material. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, when I heard that, I did what every millennial does. Like I went to Amazon, I bought 200 feet of wicker material, you know, free two-day shipping. And then I immediately felt guilty for supporting Jeff Bezos. You know, <laughs> We come home, I get it, you know, and my kids and I, we sit down, we watch Indiana Jones, and we spend hours trying to make the most intimidating whip we can. And man, no one would have fled in fear with the whips that we made. Like they yeah. would have just fallen on the ground laughing, right? And interestingly, the oldest manuscripts actually say that Jesus made something like a whip, mm -hmm. a pseudo whip, something that approximated a whip. It's the Greek word host. And then it, the prevailing theory among scholars is, is that it was the animal bedding that Jesus used. That's about the only way to explain why that material was in the temple. So that means he was probably already near the animals. And we know that an the sheep and the cattle were animals that were historically herded using implements like that, where you kind of hit the ground to make this loud noise to herd them out. Yeah. But ultimately, it comes down to what does the Greek say? And that's where I, I really slow down and we look at, it says in English, if I'm translating it word for word, and making a whip out of cords, he drove out of the temple all, and then it uses this phrase, to the sheep, kai the cattle. And so the question is, is it saying along with the sheep and the cattle, like he drove out of the temple all along with, or is it saying he drove out of the temple all, both the sheep and the cattle? And the really interesting thing is that sort of phrase, that to noun, chi noun phrase, is used 90 times in the New Testament. And to translate John's gospel saying he whipped people, you'd have to translate it in a way it's not used any of the other 90 times. Yeah. So it's led a number of scholars to make very strong statements, which is not normally something scholars do, right? <laughs> to say yeah. it clearly is saying he used it to drive out the animals. But right. So then I just say, look, that may neutralize what seems to be a toxic text for some, at least, you know, at least for some pacifists or those who believe in nonviolence. But how does this actually advance our understanding of Jesus? And I think what it shows is that Jesus wasn't passive. You know, he didn't just sit by and do nothing mm -hmm. in the face of injustice. You know, Gandhi referred to him as the most active resistor of injustice in human history. Yeah. And I think that's what we see in Monday. And I, I could spend more time on that, but that's a quick overview. No, I love it. And I'm in this a phase of life right now that I hope never ends. I want to understand the Greek. I wish it wasn't a dead language. I'm constantly uh -huh. referencing that kind of stuff because it does change scripture. And I've never 
looked at those verses and thought Jesus caused harm on people. Mm -hmm. I know that some people see it that way, but he did. I mean, at least again, you can tell me I'm wrong. I'm totally open to that. I don't think he was hurting people, but he was frustrated. Like you said, he went somewhere else, came back and was like, this isn't okay. And changed the situation. He changed the scenario and he let them know how he felt and what was right and what his father's will was. But he wasn't like, like you were saying, he wasn't throwing a tantrum. And I'm like, okay, so then that means that it is possible for us to be righteously angry and not want to see our, you know, our father's house or our father's story be used outside of the way it was meant to be without losing it, right? Like, you know, be angry, but do not sin kind of thing. I think we see Jesus exemplify that sometimes, like I was saying earlier, peace means taking the most direct route. And, but I love that. I love the addition of looking forward and seeing like went in the temple, did his reconnaissance, slept on it. Yep. Still came back and was like, no, no, no. <laughs> like we're clearing this out, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. You know, like all good Hebrew prophets, he actually explains his actions afterwards. So he says, you know, my house is to be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a, a den of thieves, right? And and when you look at the, it's a fusion of of both a passage from Isaiah and from Jeremiah that talks about both the marginalizing practices. So you know this was this took place in the court of the Gentiles, and right. originally that was not part of the temple's blueprints, like a separate court for foreigners, right? But here they were corralled within, and there were actually stone signs that we've recovered that said, you know, if you venture beyond this courtyard, you'll be put to death if you're a foreigner. Wow. But it was also the exploitative practices. You know, you think of the money changers. We we know that just the surcharge they added to convert the currency that everyone used to the temple currency that had to be used to purchase things, that brought in enough profits to line the whole Holy of Holies with gold plating. You know, afterwards, during that explanation, it says that the lame and the blind came in and he healed them and children could be heard singing, you know, two groups that were not allowed in the temple were suddenly brought in. So, so this beautiful miracle we don't focus on. And then John's gospel adds, um, the disciples remembered afterwards that it said that zeal for my house will consume me. And it's interesting, you know, Mattathias, he had zeal for God and it led him to kill the king's inspector. His son had zeal for God and it led him to pick up the sword of the revolutionary. The temple leadership, because of this event on Monday, it says their zeal led them to look for a way to kill Jesus. But Jesus says, my zeal is going to lead to me being consumed. Right. Truly righteous zeal may consume me, but not others. That's what I was going to say. Like, it's going to consume him and he's like fixing it along the way. And to me, it's such a natural way to view Holy Week because Mm. Christ is love and he is joy, that means he's also peace. And so, of course, he would go through this really important and impactful week for his people and for his ministry peacefully. Yeah. And I just think that's one of my favorite, I mean, Easter is my favorite time of year because it just just feels like new life and like new goodness. But what an opportunity to look at, like, look at this week and see him exemplify something that obviously he's asking us to walk into as well. And something that, you know, with your story of how you stepped into this community, like not everybody's going to feel called to pick up their life and move to an urban area, right? Or that's not actually like in the cards for everybody. How do you see people walking this message out in their just day-to-day lives? That's a great question. I think this is one of those 
types of books that's best processed in community because I think ultimately it's not up for me to answer that for each person who who's considering uh, the content of the book, but rather to be part of a local community that says, okay, how do we look at how Jesus cultivated peace in his location? And what are the takeaways for us? How can we contend for the flourishing of our neighbors in our own location? And so, yeah, you know, that's why like I include discussion questions at the back of the book so yeah. that communities together can grapple with Holy Week and what Jesus did. Yeah. And I actually looked through those and it's, it is hefty. Like some people are like, oh, there's discussion questions. There's like one or two. <laughs> you have a full like workbook. So hugely suggest people go through this like with their community. I'm really excited about getting this episode and this content to people at a time where it makes sense to like read about this and and learn about it and see maybe see Holy Week through a little bit of a different a different lens, not yeah. trying to change what happened, but just like here's another way to look at it. And I love that. Well, thanks, Blake. Where can people follow, keep up with you online? Sure. Well, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, and just search my name, Jason Porterfield, and you'll find me. But the main place would be my website, jasonporterfield.com. They can actually read the first chapter of Fight Like Jesus for free there. And I also have another resource called 100 Early Christian Quotes on Not Killing that looks at the early Christian attitude to war and violence. And so that's available for free as well there. Awesome. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Crappy Christian Podcast. And hey, by the way, if you super loved it, can you go leave a five-star review wherever you're listening? That'd be awesome. All right. See you next week.